Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, and tonight... New horrific details are emerging about the attempted violent attack against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the one that ended with the wounding and hospitalization of her husband, Paul Pelosi. The alleged violent intruder, David DePap, is now facing federal charges for breaking into the Pelosi's home and beating Paul Pelosi with a hammer early Friday morning. The federal criminal complaint released today reveals that the suspect, who trafficked online in far-right conspiracy theories about COVID and the 2020 election and Holocaust denialism, quote, stated that he was going to hold Nancy hostage and talk to her. If Nancy were to tell DePap the truth, he would let her go. And if she lied, he was going to break her kneecaps. DePap also explained that by breaking Nancy's kneecaps, she would then have to be wheeled into Congress, which would show other members of Congress there were consequences to actions, unquote. Several prominent Republicans have condemned the attack, including today, Donald Trump. With Paul Pelosi, that's a terrible thing. With all of them, it's a terrible thing. Trump very quickly pivoted to attacking San Francisco for its high crime rate, but he at least did condemn the attack on Paul Pelosi, as did House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Well, let me be perfectly clear. Violence or threat of violence has no place in our society. And what happened to Paul Pelosi is wrong as did Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who tweeted he is, quote, horrified and disgusted by the reports that Paul Pelosi was assaulted. But you know what? Far too many other Republicans and conservative leaders are out there instead spreading insane, offensive, and false conspiracy theories, such as the complete and utter lie, the deranged smear that Paul Pelosi and the attacker, the man who hit him in the head with a hammer, were in a sexual relationship. To his 8.7 million Twitter followers, Donald Trump Jr. shared an image of a hammer and a pair of underwear that had the caption, got my Paul Pelosi Halloween costume ready. He also posted something else, which he quickly deleted, a a South Park-esque cartoon image, supposedly of Pelosi, and the guy who hit him in the head with a hammer having sex. You know what? When some sick moron sent a white powder to the home of Donald Trump Jr. in 2018, sending his then-wife, Vanessa, to the hospital as a precaution. That was awful. Why is this happening to Paul Pelosi? Not the same thing, even worse. It's hard to fathom the kind of mind that hears of a tragedy, like what happened to 82-year-old Paul Pelosi and decides to traffic in this filth. But sadly, Donald Trump Jr. is hardly alone. Former Republican congressman and chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, who now runs Trump's social media company, Truth Social, shared this Halloween image with the words, at least this guy has his clothes on. Nunes also reposted this meme using a poster for the gay romantic comedy Bros 
twisting it into a smear of Paul Pelosi. And again, the man who tried to bash Pelosi's head in with a hammer. Words fail. Republican Congressman Clay Higgins of Louisiana tweeted, then deleted this, which was captured by Voice of America's Steve Herman, a photo of Nancy Pelosi with the words, quote, that moment you realize the nudist hippie male prostitute LSD guy was the reason your husband didn't make it to your fundraiser. I mean, what is wrong with these people? There's more, but you get the point. In addition to being an inhuman and inhumane response to a tragedy, it's a lie. The federal affidavit released this afternoon says Pelosi did not know the suspect. And San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott said this on CNN this afternoon. There is absolutely no evidence that Mr. Pelosi knew this man. As a matter of fact, the evidence indicates the exact opposite. Sadly, in this era of social media, after every tragedy like this, we unfortunately see some awful reactions. A volunteer official for the Nebraska Democratic Party was fired after saying he was glad Republican leader Steve Scalise was shot by a deranged Bernie Sanders supporter in 2017. That same year, there were some pretty awful comments on social media after Republican Senator Rand Paul's neighbor attacked him, breaking six of his ribs, bruising his lungs, making it difficult for him to breathe, sending Rand Paul to the hospital. And three years later, commenting on a controversy involving Senator Paul, one of Speaker Pelosi's daughter tweeted that Rand Paul's neighbor was right. She then deleted it. All of these comments unequivocally wrong. But these smears about Paul Pelosi, they're not just evidence of partisanship blocking someone's ability to be human. They're conspiratorial. They're, they're in a way an attempt to not just downplay, but justify the violence. They're part of the same sickness that got Paul Pelosi injured to begin with. Some of these insane conspiracy theories about Paul Pelosi are still trending on Twitter under its new billionaire owner, Elon Musk. And we should note, Musk himself sent a tweet that pushed this false smear of Pelosi. Responding to a tweet from Hillary Clinton in which she condemned the attack as inspired by hateful rhetoric, Elon Musk, who has more than 110 million followers on Twitter, wrote, quote, there might be more to this story than meets the eye, unquote. And then he shared a link to an extreme right-wing website, a site so deranged, it claimed in 2016 that Hillary Clinton had died and a body double had been sent to debate Donald Trump. Here's what Elon Musk said in April about what he wants Twitter to be. We want to be just very reluctant to delete things and and have... um... Just, just be very cautious with, with, with perm- permanent bans. It's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. There is a vast difference between Elon Musk wanting Twitter to lean more into the freest speech possible and Elon Musk himself abusing those free speech rights by smearing people with a complete and utter lack of caution. There is such a thing as empirical truth, and it is not to be found at the website that reported Hillary Clinton dead six years ago. 
National security experts have been warning for years that we in the United States need to fear more stochastic terrorism. In case you're not familiar with the term stochastic, it's defined as the public demonization of a person or a group that results in the incitement of a violent act, even without express orders to attack that person or group. When leaders, whether elected or in media or in a movement, when leaders claim that their opponents are pedophiles or Satanists or are part of a grand conspiracy to hurt you and your family, is anyone really surprised when somebody who hears this acts? What exactly do you think is going to happen when a president for months lies to his supporters that an election is being stolen? What exactly do you think is going to happen when smear artists invent a deranged conspiracy theory about Hillary Clinton and her campaign and non-existent child sex operations at the basement of a very real family pizzeria. You know what happens? A guy with a gun drives from North Carolina to that pizzeria. I really hope that all of these people fanning the flames of this conspiracy would take a moment to contemplate what has gone on here today and maybe to stop. What exactly do you think is going to happen when politicians and TV anchors push the great replacement theory? The idea that Jews want to replace whites in America with Latinos and people of color. You know what happens? That deranged conspiracy theory inspires the anti-Semitic attacks in Pittsburgh, the anti-Latino attacks in El Paso, the racist Buffalo supermarket shooting. It's very difficult laying eyes on the person who shot your mother down in a grocery store. Paul Pelosi, to his attacker, was not a grandfather or a father or a husband or a businessman. He was an enemy. While speaking today on the investigation into the attack, the San Francisco police chief posed an important question for all of us as Americans. What does it take? Does it take somebody being murdered? Does it take, uh, I mean, what does it take for us to finally stand up and say, this is enough, it needs to stop? Despite what your political views are, it needs to stop. It's not just folks in the political arena playing fast and loose with these dangerous ideas. Take Kanye West, now known as Ye. His response to criticism of his many anti-Semitic comments has been to make more of them. A recent tirade against, quote, Jewish business people got him suspended from Instagram again last night. And alarmingly, there are a lot of people out there on social media taking Ye's side on this. NBA star Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, he recently tweeted a link to a widely debunked anti-Semitic movie full of lies and just junk. He was not apologetic at all at a Saturday press conference. There's things being posted every day. I'm no different than the next human being, so don't treat me any different. The next human being doesn't have 4.6 million Twitter followers, Kyrie, at a time of rising anti-Semitic violence. I do not know what is missing in these people's hearts or their lives that they feel the need to smear individuals or groups, to ignore the humanity of these other people. But in one way, you know, Kyrie Irving is right. He is no different. He might have a larger platform, but in this moment, 
we all need to consider how we talk about our fellow humans. We're going to pick it up on the other side with a candidate vying to lead America's second largest city, Los Angeles. Democrat Rick Caruso was once a Republican. Does he think America can get past this poison that's been injected into our politics? That's next. As we approach the midterm elections, if you want to know how much the Democrats are playing defense, just take a look at their recent and upcoming travel schedules. First Lady Jill Biden in Rhode Island, Vice President Kamala Harris in Connecticut, former President Obama and President Biden heading to Pennsylvania, and now the Washington Post is reporting that President Biden is also going to head to California as part of his final midterm swing. California is going to campaign with San Diego area candidate Mike Levin for a competitive seat Levin's held since 2018. And nearby... Los Angeles, Democrats Rick Caruso, a former Republican, and Representative Karen Bass are locked in a high-profile race to be the city's next mayor. Caruso is a billionaire real estate developer uh, who is a former Republican and independent. Now he's a Democrat who changed his affiliation uh, earlier this year. And he joins me now. Uh, Rick Caruso, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Appreciate it. With President Biden now forced to visit places such as California. Um, Are you sensing that there is an increased probability of a Republican wave that that, uh, Democrats are are having a tough time? Or is Los Angeles kind of immune from the zeitgeist, the wave that, that a lot of pollsters say is building for the Republican Party and against Democrats? You know, Jake, uh, thanks for having me on the show. And I can't really comment on that for the following reason. I have been spending and so focused on what's happening here in Los Angeles. I'm not really focused on what's happening nationally. I know the focus on being around every corner of the city is about homelessness and crime and corruption. And that's what I'm talking to residents about. So uh, we're going to stay focused for the next seven or eight days on that. And uh, we'll see what the rest of the country does down the road. But You know, L.A. is a very unique place right now. We've got some serious problems that we've got to take care of, and I'm excited about having the opportunity to lead that change. So let's talk about that, um, what you talk about homelessness and drugs and crime, because six hours north of you, uh, a man who reportedly, uh, at at least at some point, had been dealing with homelessness and and drug addiction, uh, broke into the home of House Speaker Pelosi, uh, which for a lot of individuals highlights the issues of homelessness and crime and drugs plaguing that city as well as Los Angeles, your city. Over the past two years in Los Angeles, homelessness has risen by more than 4%. Crime is trending up as well. Murders up 16.5%. Robberies rising 15.9%. What can be done to counter this trend? Well, first of all, to the Pelosi family, it's terrible what happened. And, um, you know, I pray for the speedy recovery of Mr. Pelosi. In terms of Los Angeles, it's all about leadership. It's about making some good, smart, tough decisions. It's about that the system is broken here in Los Angeles. It's also, we've seen a lot of corruption in the system and that's fueling what's happening with the homeless problem. We're not taking care of it in spite of the fact we're spending a billion dollars a year, we being the city of Los Angeles. So the system isn't working and crime on murders alone are up 50% in two years. And people don't feel safe in their communities. So we've got to do some things that prevent crime and make sure we're making communities safer. I've got experience doing that. I'm going to bring that experience to the mayor's office. I've got experience building. We need to build more housing. 
We are so short of housing in Los Angeles, 500,000 units. We're over-regulated. We make it difficult to invest and build in the city of Los Angeles. We've got to give the homeless a path to a better life with compassion, with dignity, care. But they have to be taken off the street. And then they have to be given the services that they need. Psychiatric mm-hmm. services, drug addiction services. There is a path forward to this. There's programs that are working exceedingly well. And I have fashioned my plans after those programs that have a 90% success rate of people not falling back into homelessness once they're treated properly and given so, shelter. So you and, and Congresswoman Bass, uh, your opponent, you say a lot of similar things when it comes to your visions on, on crime and public safety and policing, the need to cut through the red tape. Uh, to build more housing. Uh, You have both resisted calls to cut the uh, LAPD's nearly $3 billion budget. You've both advocated for hiring more gang intervention workers, sending unarmed professionals to calls involving mentally ill people. The the big difference, it seems to me, is that she has experience working within a system, and it's to be, you know, perfectly candid, not exactly the strongest mayorality in America. Uh, and, And you have more experience as a do as I say, CEO. So, so why would you be better? Well, let me just sort of differ with the premise to that question, if you don't mind, uh, respectfully, Jake. I've worked for three mayors in the city of Los Angeles. Tom Bradley, I worked for as a commissioner, Dick Reardon, and Jim Hahn. I'm the only candidate, the only person that's been responsible for the operation of LAPD when I was the president of the police commission, brought in new leadership, Bill Bratton, and we cut crime by 30% by community policing, officers on the street. So I actually know how to do it. Karen has never worked for the city of Los Angeles. I've been inside city government and I've been outside. I built my own business from scratch. I have a proven track record of success. You need to be an executive. The day either I or Karen take office, about 30 days after the election, you're gonna be responsible, the mayor will be responsible for an $11 billion budget, 50 separate departments, 80,000 employees. If you have no experience being an executive or managing, you're gonna be lost. And we're gonna get more of the same. We've had that for the last 10 years. Right, but a Bass supporter supporter might say, but it's not a CEO job, the LA mayorality. Uh, It's a job where you really have to convince people uh, because it is not a strong mayorality. And, and that's my track record. I built my business. I would have never been able to do in Los Angeles what I've done without finding common ground and working with everybody and bringing communities together. I would have never been able to reform LAPD unless I had that skill set. I've actually done it in the city of Los Angeles through the government enterprise. That's why I'm uniquely qualified. That's why I'm excited about this job, because I know I can do it. I've done it before. And there's great hope and possibility in this city. Change can happen. All right. Rick Caruso, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. What might kitty litter boxes have to do with the fate of American democracy? Well, our country is literally going to crap if lies like this next bonkers conspiracy theory keep getting spread as fact for political gain. We're going to try to bury the BS once and for all. That's next. Children in America are not 
going to the bathroom in litter boxes in their schools. That apparently needs to be said because it is a conspiracy theory that a lot of Republican candidates out there just can't shake. The latest purveyor of this insanity is Don Baldock, who's the Republican Senate nominee in New Hampshire. Guess what? We have furries and fuzzies in classrooms. They lick themselves. They're cats. When they don't like something, they hiss. They're putting litter boxes, right? Litter boxes for them. These are the same people that are concerned about spreading germs, yet they let, they let children lick themselves and then touch everything. And they're starting to lick each other. I mean, what? This is, needless to say, nonsense. And not only is it a lie, an urban legend, it's one shared in the service of, let's be honest here, advocating for being cruel to trans kids. In any case, fact checkers for major news outlets have repeatedly and reportedly looked into this and found no evidence for it. They've shot it down. Fact checkers, including CNN's uh, K-file Andrew Kaczynski, who joins us now. Andrew, you've been talking about this for weeks. I still can't understand why people continue to, to spew this nonsense. How did this even become a Republican talking point? Yeah, so fuzzies and furries uh, is what he said. Uh, It's basically, you know, as you said, this false claim that kids are dressing up as cats, uh, using litter boxes in schools. We saw Bullock go a little bit further there and say that kids were uh, jumping out and hissing at each other uh, and licking each other. Now, look, furries are a real subculture. People will go to conventions. They'll sometimes dress as animals. There are no litter boxes. There are no litter boxes uh, at the conventions. Uh, There are no litter boxes in the schools. People at home are probably asking themselves, where did this even come from? Uh, The earliest that we could find was a Michigan school board meeting uh, at the end of 2021. Let's just take a listen to what was said there. It was addressed by a child uh, a couple months ago that they are put in an environment where there are kids that are that identify as a furry, a cat or a dog, whatever. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a in one of the unisex bathrooms a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. And um, I am really disturbed by that. And I, I will do some more investigation on that. I know it's going on nationwide. I know it is. It's part of the agenda that's being pushed. Now, look, this claim did not really go viral uh, until about a month later when the chairwoman of the Michigan Republican Party uh, shared it on her Facebook page. uh, And then from there, we saw various uh, conservative influencers uh, and media personalities uh, share it themselves. And it's sort of taken off from there. So uh, Baldick, the uh, New Hampshire Republican Senate nominee, he's just the latest uh, Republican candidate to say this, but we've heard it uh, from others before. Take a listen. Why don't we have litter boxes in some of the school districts so kids can pee in them because they identify as a furry? We've lost our minds. Not many people know that we have furries in Colorado schools. Yeah, kids identifying as cats. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it's happening all over Colorado, and schools are tolerating it. So these are the Republican uh, gubernatorial nominees in Minnesota and Colorado. 
What's the thinking behind pushing this nonsense? Obviously, it's anti-trans. Is it helping them politically? Yeah, I, I think you, you hit the point right there, which is Republicans basically see this uh, as a way to say, uh, you know, look how ridiculous um, the Democrats are when it comes to things like uh, gender identity uh, and transgender students. Um, but then in this instance themselves, they just kind of look ridiculous themselves. All right, Andrew Kaczynski, thanks so much for that fact check. Really appreciate it. Coming up is another landmark Supreme Court decision about to fall. Justices are now weighing ending affirmative action in college admissions. Are decades of precedent about to be overturned again? Next. Big day at the U.S. Supreme Court today. Arguments indicating that another decades-long precedent could soon be overturned. Could. This time it's affirmative action. For nearly five hours, justices heard arguments on two cases concerning race-conscious admissions decisions at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The conservative majority appeared skeptical of affirmative action. They questioned how diverse classrooms are beneficial to education. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. That's Race in itself in may be considered a plus factor. Yes, Your Honor. And therefore, those who don't get the plus factor have what is essentially a negative factor. The three liberal justices seem to disagree. They argued that universities are looking at students as a whole, and they suggested that without affirmative action, minority enrollment will drop. First of all, the university is not requiring anybody to give their race at the beginning. Um, When you give your race, you're not getting any special points. No one's automatically getting in because race is being used. But where can you point into the record where merely checking the box, standing alone as one factor, got somebody in? And I thought that part of what it meant to be an American and to believe in American pluralism is that actually our institutions, you know, are reflective of who we are as, as a people in all our variety. With me now, one of the attorneys who argued in favor of affirmative action in front of court today, David uh, Hinojosa. David, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Congratulations, your first argument before the U.S. Supreme Court. That's got to be a big highlight for an attorney. Um, how do you think your arguments were received? It seems as though, not just after today's arguments, but just what I've been reading from colleges and universities all over the country is they think that this court is going to kill affirmative action no matter what. Well, we've seen this a few times already over the last 20 years when people thought that either affirmative action programs would be uh, reversed at the University of Texas at Austin or the University of Michigan nearly 20 years ago, uh, had two cases, and the court actually held, upheld, you know, race-conscious Admissions. So it seems like everybody is always, you know, doom and gloom around these issues. But what ultimately ends up prevailing is the reasonableness of the law and race conscious admissions as one way of helping uh, underrepresented students of color access higher education. And these are highly talented uh, students of color who often are overlooked in the normal admissions process. So we feel really confident. Uh, even after today, and we see all the headlines. Mm -hmm. uh, But, you know, judges always have tough questions. That's the reason why we have oral arguments. So one of the key arguments today uh, from conservatives, one one line of tough questioning, 
uh, is that defenders of affirmative action, such as yourself, in college admissions, cannot articulate a specific end point. Take a listen. Don't see how, I don't see how you can say that the program will ever end. What is your goal, and how will a court ever be able to determine whether your goal has been reached? And I gather, you know, Justice Alito is saying, when is it end? When is your sunset? When will you know? And as you know better than I, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in her majority opinion in 1978, quote, we expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. So we're six years shy of uh, Justice O'Connor's 25-year goal. How long do you think affirmative action should continue? Well, it was an aspirational goal. It wasn't a hard deadline set, you know, no matter what the discussions, you know, were leading today. You could easily read O'Connor's opinion, and it is not no hard sunset. It's trying to hope for the better of America, and we actually hoped that we would be there, you know, in 25 years. But racial inequality persists in so many different ways, especially in our K-12 uh, systems, and uh, we're not going to be quite there yet, as, you know, the attorneys for the university shared today. But we do know what that endpoint is. We do know that that endpoint is when that they're able to achieve the educational benefits of diversity that the university set for themselves, right? That's wholly within their responsibility and rights is to identify what those goals are. They are measuring their progress towards those goals. And in the meantime, once they identify a race-neutral alternative, you know, some other mechanism like a percentage plan or, you know, a mixture of recruitment and scholarships and the like, where they don't have to consider someone's race as just one factor among several, then that's the end point, you know, that will happen. It's going to happen on a case-by-case basis. Every university sets their own goals. Mm. They have measurements, and those measurements can be challenged. They weren't challenged in this case by the petitioner. Most of the arguments the petitioners raised, frankly, are in their briefs, but they're not in the evidentiary record back at the uh, Court of Appeals or the District Court. So Justice Kavanaugh argued that there are other better ways, in his view, to achieve diversity at universities. Take a listen. It would be uh, permissible for the court to say that uh, you have to eliminate things like legacy, children of donors, uh, if you could uh, obtain a sufficient uh, meet its diversity goals, uh, was your word, uh, by doing so and doing race-neutral admissions. Do I have that correct? What Kavanaugh seems to be saying is that college and universities could stop admitting legacy students and children of donors, which often benefits white students, uh, and then that would help achieve diversity without taking race into account. What do you, what do you make of that argument? Well, there's a couple of things there. One is that it all depends on how much of an impact that is having. You know, how much of an impact does it matter whether or not you're the the descendant of an alumni, right? If it's not making too much impact, like at the University of North Carolina, SFFA's expert had analyzed this and said, you know what, legacy admissions actually aren't making much of a difference. So if you turn off legacy admissions, you're not going to end up with all these seats that become, you know, available. And who's going to grab those seats anyway? Are they going to be other white applicants, you know, who have been able to uh, uh, push up their test scores artificially through, you know, test prep and that sort of thing? Or are you actually going to capture, you know, real uh, 
racial diversity across. And, and so it all depends on what universities are doing. Not everybody gives uh, bumps to donors and the like. And so, again, it's unfortunately, you know, it's a case by case basis. And that's how and why this should not, the, the, these cases should not be ruled with an across the board acts to affirmative action. And then quickly, if you could, um, there are other methods suggested as well. One that I've heard before is look at zip codes so that you can take kids from predominantly black or Latino neighborhoods or socioeconomically uh, challenged neighborhoods, et cetera. And that might do the same thing, except it's not uh, taking race into account. Is that viable? So one, it's mostly theoretical. So the experts in the UNC case had actually looked at geographic uh, diversity, and it still wasn't meeting the levels. And because there just worse, aren't enough applicants from from poorer sections, or is that in enough? in part, you know, because of that. But also, you're looking at a broad spectrum of diversity, right? You you want viewpoints, diverse viewpoints, diverse experiences, geography, you know, yeah, yeah all sorts of different diversity metrics that come in. So you don't necessarily want solely, you know, the all the poor black and brown children, you know, yeah. to come in because then that's just going to feed into the stereotypes that universities are trying to fend off. So you want that intra-racial diversity because you know you want a broader perspectives, broader experiences. So sometimes you know those uh, things that so- supposedly look good on paper, like zip codes, mm-hmm. don't actually work in reality and practice when you look at broader scopes of uh, diversity. All right, David Hinojosa, I know you've had a long day. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Congratulations again on your first Supreme Court case. It's got to be a, a professional thrill. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jake. I appreciate you coming here. We often talk about American history to help put the present into context. Coming up, we're going to take a fascinating look with documentarian extraordinaire Ken Burns. Join us as we go back in time through some amazing photographs he's compiled, including one of an America First rally held long before Donald Trump was even born. That's next. The recent surge in public displays of anti-Semitism continued over the weekend. On Friday, these banners reading, End Jewish Supremacy in America, and, quote, Honk if you know it's the Jews, were hung from a highway overpass in Jacksonville, Florida. That incident coming after similar banners were displayed above the 405 freeway in Los Angeles. Those in support of the anti-Semitic remarks made by rapper Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. On Saturday, the message Kanye was right about the Jews popped up again, this time outside of TIAA Bank Field during a Florida-Georgia football game. At the same time, Brooklyn Nets basketball star Kyrie Irving has been defending how he promoted an anti-Semitic film, one that includes an invented quote from former Senate aide Harold Rosenthal. Rosenthal was killed by terrorists in 1976, the fake quote was invented by white supremacists in 1978. Nice source material, Kyrie. All these anti-Semitic messages bringing us back to a different time in America when Jews were the victims of open, widespread discrimination across the United States. It's one of the many themes in a brand-new book called Our America, a Photographic History, which shows photos of some of the darkest but also some of the brightest moments in U.S. history. With me now is Ken Burns, the acclaimed documentarian who compiled the photographs 
for this book. Ken, good to see you again. In, in your book, you include this photo of a Jewish immigrant from 1919, noting that millions of Jews immigrated to America over the first few decades of the 20th century. At first, they were discriminated against in the job and housing markets, but when America entered World War I, more than 250,000 Jews enlisted. This was the beginning of Jews beginning to become fully accepted into American society, or so I thought. Um, tell us more about the significance of this time period. Well, it's, it's really when we had open borders from 1870 to, to 1920, and millions and millions of people came in, including a lot of Central and Eastern European Jews. And that beautiful photograph by E.O. Hoppe from 1919, I think it was, sort of speaks to the kind of thoughtfulness of the experience. But back in 1872, Grant had uh, barred Jews from several southern states, rescinded by Abraham Lincoln. So there's always been in American society and this undercurrent of anti-Semitism. It's everywhere in the world, and it's something that we have to push back about, and, and we're going to see it in every generation. After the doors sort of swung shut after 1920, there was a backlash. This is the replacement theory we're hearing now, first bubbled up in the early decades of the 20th century. And so the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act of 1924 essentially made minuscule quotas from countries that had a large Jewish population and expanded quotas from the so-called Nordic, or Hitler would later say, Aryan nations of Northern Europe. So you begin to see these patterns, and what happens is it disappears years, it becomes sort of um, pushed down, and then it comes back up. And I think what we're seeing is such a disturbing trend. The ADL, you know, reports unbelievable upsurge in yeah. anti-Semitic incidents, uh, first time in decades that it's been at this level. So speaking of things being pushed down and then coming back up again, there's this photograph from Madison Square Garden in New York City, 1941. It's <laughs> yeah. of a, quote, America first rally. Uh, obviously, that's a phrase we're familiar with uh, now since it was President Trump's mm-hmm campaign slogan. Uh, Charles Lindbergh was the head of the American First Committee. It's a group uh, that supported white supremacy. Lindbergh claimed that the British and the Jews and the Roosevelt administration were war agitators. Uh, Thousands of people packed this rally. They waved Nazi flags uh, underneath American flags. Yeah, it's it's this really disturbing undercurrent, and particularly their chief spokesman was for a time Charles Lindbergh, and um, there were many, many prominent Americans who subscribed to this. It was not just an anti-war movement, but it was a kind of anti-Jewish influence, and of course, they repeated all the old tropes that we hear today, and we've heard for centuries about the undue influence of Jews. It's complete um, poppycock, but it's there. He gives a speech in Des Moines, Iowa, that goes way too far, and suddenly there's a big reaction, and people stop and say, wait, uh, this is the voice of Charles Lindbergh, but the words of Adolf Hitler, and he, you know, basically the America First begins to shrink, and of course the Japanese attack, and then the Germans uh, declare war on us, and all of that yeah. goes by the way. And, and, and yet during the war, we're still not fighting to save the Jews. We're, no, we're still not letting the Jews in. Uh, we're we're going to end fascism, but it's not to save the people who are in most uh, dire need of being rescued from fascism. Yeah. And your, and your recent documentary that you did with Linovic uh, really captures that well. Um, one last lighter note, if I can, uh, in, honor, in honor of the World Series, uh, I do want to end with this photo 
Uh, it's of the first ever World Series, 1903, the Boston American team. Yes. Later, later, the Red Sox faced the Pittsburgh Pirates. The game was held in Boston. Thousands of Boston fans paraded the field with drums, yelling, banging, trying to distract the Pirates. The crazy fans were dubbed the Royal Rooters. Boston eventually won the World Series. Right. And the Boston Journal headline read, the Boston Americans are now champions of the world. I'm a, a Phillies fan, so I know something about crazy fans. Um, but I don't know that we would ever be allowed to do anything like that. Jake, the Royal Rooters were something else. They had songs. They had distracting whistles. Uh, This turned out to be a best-of-nine-game series. The Pittsburgh uh, team won the first three, and then the Boston team uh, came back and won, and it was the first of uh, what would eventually be the Boston Red Sox uh, World Championships. But these are about as rabid as you get uh, with uh, theme songs and uh, drums and and fans throughout the stands uh, with chants. It's it's really yeah. a wonderful time. As you see, everybody's dressed up the way no one is uh, today at, at a baseball game. Well, I'll take you to a Phillies game, and you'll see you'll see the legacy of that. Ken Burns, thank you. His new book here it is, out, <laughs> Our America. It's out tomorrow. An amazing, gorgeous book uh, for your home library. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues now with lovable, loyal Laura and awesome, adorable Allison. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.